Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So this morning, um, it's again great to be here with you. Haven't been here in a while. Uh, we're going to be in, um, I want to share a passage with you this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And um, I want to talk about reflection today and uh, what that means. And uh, so just to give you just a real quick summary of the entire book of Philippians, it looks something like this if you were to look at it from 10,000 feet in the air. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, he's writing this from a jail cell in Rome. Now, for the most part, he's under house arrest here, okay? This is not as bad as his other imprisonment where that uh, he was in a jail cell, you know, water dripping down on his head, some really nasty conditions. Now he is chained up to an imperial guard at Caesar's household. Now, there's pros and cons to that. The con is that he is chained to this guard 24 hours a day where he can't even go to the bathroom on his own. So he has no privacy. But the plus side to this was that when he was brought up, uh, being brought up on charges, uh, he wasn't denied any friendships. They told him, listen, we're going to lock him up. He's in chains, but don't deny him any of his friends. So the neat thing was that every time somebody would come, one of Paul's friends, he would share with them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these guards were being changed little by little. As a matter of fact, when you even go all the way down, you fast forward to chapter 4, in Paul's final greeting to this letter, verses 21 to 23, he writes, Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So the guards that were worshiping Caesar we're now being changed one by one because of hearing Paul's testimony, of hearing Paul's instruction to the churches. And they were chained up to him, and here they are no longer worshiping Caesar, but worshiping the creator of the universe. They were hearing about Jesus, and they were getting changed. No longer was Caesar top priority, top priority for these empirical guards, who for another way of, for, uh, just for a, a common language that we would understand better, the imperial guard were like the CIA. That's what they were. They were the, they were the elite, the top of the top, and now they're being changed. And when you go through some of the, the beauty, uh, different parts of the entire book of Philippians, which is not long, you hear things like Paul telling the church in chapter one, I am filled with a joy. I am filled with such great joy knowing that you and I are partnering up for the greater good of sharing the gospel together. And his joys were made complete knowing that they shared something in common. There was a, a common denominator and that it was that they were covered by the blood of Christ and they were sharing that with all people. And Paul was thrilled. You wouldn't even know that Paul was in prison 
until you get down to somewhere around verse 7 or 8 in chapter 1. Now, if I was writing the letter to the church, I know what I would be writing, and that would be like, hey, you get here now. I, I want you here, and do not come empty-handed, right? You bring me some baked goods. You bring me some fish. You bring me everything I want. Paul doesn't do any of that. He's just thrilled. He's just thrilled that there's a partnership, and he's so encouraged by that. And he knows that when you read through the language of chapter 1 again, somewhere in there, he writes it, I know that I'm in these chains for a reason, for a reason. Like he knows that God's sovereignty in and through his life, there's a purpose. And again, I, I, I don't know where I would be at. I mean, if I was in prison, again, I, I, would, I would be angry. I would say, this is unjust. You guys have no, there's no grounds to put me here. Who are you? Get me out. Paul doesn't do anything like that. He's just like, okay, if this is for the greater good, I'm going to succumb to God's will in my life. That is some strong, that is a strong character by Paul. And I'm thinking, man, if I could just have half of that attitude that Paul does, I wonder what advances for God's kingdom would be made in and through my life, right? Paul never looked at his own circumstances. And um, in chapter 2, Paul gives the most encouraging words, the most beautiful words of the entire New Testament when we read about the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, but specifically in verses 6 to 8, where Paul illustrates to the church that, hey, by the way, that man in whom you crucified, he stepped down from his throne to be with us. The most beautiful words in the entire New Testament to understand the humility of Jesus Christ, which Jesus is the one who created humility, that he would be with us, that he would take on flesh, become completely man while being completely God to take on the sin of the world so that people like me and you would have a hope. That, 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 that it wouldn't just be what we go through on a daily basis, but there's a hope of this heaven that is waiting for us. Where, you know, as we heard beautiful singing this morning, but when you think about uh, Zephaniah, I believe it's chapter 3, verse 16, 15 or 16, where God says that I sing songs over my beloved children. Like, what does that sound like? And after... Paul illustrates to the church about the most beautiful words about the humility of Christ. He then goes and gives the church instruction on how we ought to live. And Jesus, uh, that Paul emphasizes that there is still a people that need to come into the fold yet, right? The fold that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd, all my sheep, they follow me, they hear my voice, and they will never follow a stranger. And yet Jesus said, there's still more people that have to come into the fold. They're out there in the world. Go and get them, right? That's the method that God has used to bring people into the church. It's the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for us to share that with other people. And the gospel is what enlightens people. It's, it's what charges them. Right? The Titus chapter 3, the Holy Spirit comes in and, and charges the, holy, the, the, the holiness of, 
of Christ and illuminates that inside of our minds and our hearts. And we're changed because of that. And that is just a really beautiful thing. And I know that when you look at God's method um, of bringing other sheep into the fold and how we ought to live by sharing the gospel through our obedience in Christ. Now, that's not hard, right? You know, when we read through the scriptures, there's things that we come to, and then there's specific words that we're like, why'd you put that in there? Like, obedience, really? Did we have to say that? You couldn't use something else like, hey, give it your best shot, you know, and try, you know, just try to do this. No, but we're hearing obedience, right? We're hearing that, that, that you know, when I, I, there's an obedience that seems so unrealistic sometimes. It does. And I know that that's much easier said than done. How can we ever achieve what Jesus achieved? We can't. And, uh, and it seems so far off sometimes that we don't even, it doesn't even give us the energy to try. Me included, I promise. Well, I think about that. I'm like, oh, man, I, I messed up again, you know. Uh, <sighs> How, do I, how am I ever going to get to that place where I can be obedient to Christ, be as obedient as Christ? And we know that we can't. But I think there's something in the text this morning that I want to share with you from Philippians chapter 2 that I think that there are words of encouragement. I think God wants to encourage us this morning by a specific set of words. And God knows the way that we were made. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He knows that we can only do enough where we can reach probably this high on the ladder. But he loves us, and he knows the way that we're made, and he promises that he's never going to leave us, but we'll get there shortly. But, so I want to read, and I, I think that we could really be encouraged here this morning. So if you want to follow along, I want to just take a couple of verses out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you're reading from the ESV, you might have the heading, um, Lights in the World, Okay. And again, I want us to think about what it means to reflect the Lord Jesus today. So if you would, follow along. We'll read and then we'll pray. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for those words. Lord, we hear words in there, do things without grumbling or complaining. Help us to see, what, why was Paul telling that to the church 2,000 years ago? What does it mean for us today? Or is it okay? Can we grumble? Can we dispute? Why or why not? What difference does it make? Help us with that today. Help me, Lord, because uh, just like everyone else in here, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And as you have put me here up at this podium, please forgive my sins. 
I'm a wretched sinner saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in him and obedience, which, Father, if we can be honest, it is not easy to do that. So thank you for your love and your care. Bless our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So this morning, I would ask the question, as Christians, are we putting on different personalities for different occasions? So listen to this clip. This is really cool. Uh, you really can't see it because I don't use PowerPoint, but I should. But it, it's a little man holding a copy of himself right there. I thought that was really cool. I found that the other day, and it reads thus. For generations, people have dressed in their Sunday best clothes to go to church. On arriving home, they place their Sunday best neatly back into the closet, not to be worn again until the next service. Often, as Christians, we can be guilty of putting on church personalities as would our Sunday best clothes. When in a Christian environment, we're bubbly, friendly, and seemingly without a care in the world. We use the right spiritual words and catchphrases, and all our actions are carefully pious. But as soon as we arrive home, we take off our Sunday best personality and put on our normal hang-ups, such as discouragement, guilt, resentment, and depression. We should consider why we do this and who we are fooling. Though we should always put on our best manners when in public, God has commanded our lives to be without hypocrisy. God sees and knows us as we really are. We can't fool him with our church-going personality. Remember, just because our fellow Christians think highly of us doesn't mean God does. We should free ourselves from wearing those itchy, fake personalities. We gain nothing of value by fooling our peers, and it's usually the very thing that stops us from having an honest relationship with both them and God. Hmm. Well, here I read in verse 12a that the Apostle Paul writes to the church, and he's emphasizing in this verse that whether in my presence or in my absence, I want you to live a life that reflects the Lord Jesus. Now, the church of Philippi was a life that was reflecting Jesus, both in Paul's absence as well in his presence. They weren't just putting on their Sunday best clothes and then going home and then putting on something different. They were reflecting to everyone around them what they believed. And what they believed was that they were saved by Christ. They believed that. They weren't something other. They weren't reflecting something different during the week. They were reflecting during the week what they were reflecting on Sundays. And Paul was thrilled with the church and the fellowship that they had in spreading the gospel. And their obedience was not to Paul, but it was to Christ. And, and Paul was in love with that. Paul was encouraged by that. Right? The this church was growing spiritually, and Paul's words were encouraging to them. It should be the same for us, right? When we look in our spiritual mirrors every day, we should be encouraged that we're growing. God wants you to be encouraged by that. We're to see ourselves changing before our very eyes. And if you're not changing, well, come on, you can do this. If you need some help and some prayer, ask for that. 
But we should be encouraged by that. That should be a motivation, seeing something. Not necessarily us taking on a prideful attitude, saying, hey, look at me, I'm changing for the greater good, because we have to remember that it's really God's work inside of us, that he's the one that's changing us. But we should be encouraged by that. We should see the difference, knowing that God's love is changing us more and more into the image of Christ. And I hope you are. Verse 12b, Paul gives the command. Here it comes, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's command is not to refer primarily to the salvation of the individual believer, but rather working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's within the church, referring to the body of Christ. Now, the application for the text first is in a corporate sense, right? He wants the church. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the church. You together work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's our lives on an individual basis and how we live our lives and then come together really what make up the salvation of the church, really what make up our lives together, and that we're to do this with a fear and trembling. But what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Right? I'm good. I'm saved. I got this. But Paul gives the command, work it out with fear and trembling. And I think what we're to look at is just what he went through because when you read verse 12, the first word is therefore. Therefore. And in, ver- in chapter 2, specifically in verses 5 to 11, Paul was specifically talking about the life of Christ and how Jesus didn't think it was something to cling on to in his place in heaven on that beautiful throne in which him and the Father and the Holy Spirit enjoyed a beautiful, glorious peace, not needing anything. It need us, right? The beautiful prayer we heard this morning is that God doesn't need our money to accomplish his will, but yet it's one of the methods that he uses for us to display a work that's being done inside of us. When we're giving for the greater good, we're giving knowing that, man, with the great hopes that those finances, those shekels that we put into the plate would be for the greater good of of the gospel getting before people's eyes in one way or another. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So again, when we look at that, the question we need to ask ourselves today, me included, is, hey man, does does our life look like Philippians chapter two? Jesus did all these things in humility. He loved people. Uh, he, He thought about others first. And we think about God the Father, when even at the Mount of Transfiguration, when when God the Father was there and Jesus was shining before his disciples, a few of them, that what did God say? He said, this is my beloved son. I love him. That's my, that's my son. I, I love him. And I want you to listen to him. and Be obedient to him. That's a lot easier to read than to do. It's hard to be a Christian. It really is. In some sense, it's hard. Sacrificing myself or someone else. Me giving up my hopes and dreams to help you accomplish yours. Well, who are you? I want mine done. Let's focus on me. Let's get all my stuff done. And then if there's any extra time, I hope you get yours done. That's not the attitude of Christ. Christ says, no, you think of others first. Because Jesus said, I thought about you. 
I, I brought my father glory by coming down here and becoming a human, to take on flesh, to be beaten and pulverized, and then to be nailed to a tree. I, I did that to bring my father glory and to bring you salvation, which, by the way, we created for us. Salvation was created by me, my father, and the spirit for my father, me, and the spirit. Because you're a gift that the father created to give to me. That's what, that's what God the Father is saying. You listen to my son. Be obedient. Love him. I created you for eternal life so that you would live and worship him. And through that, I'm going to let you enjoy us forever. This is not a, it's not a relationship like a Hitler where he or someone like that or Stalin who demanded that, hey, you, we be praised, that you worship us. And you'll be lucky if we throw you a few scraps of bread. God's saying, no, you're going to worship us. And I'm going to let you enjoy us. I'm going to give you the privilege of enjoying us forever and forever. Incarnational ministry that Christ would come down and live with a people like me and you. Man, we are privileged. We really are. We are so blessed. So when we look at working our salvation with fear and trembling in terms of practicality. Paul gives us two examples. Now, when you read everything through this letter, everything is good until we come to verses 14 to 16. Paul writes, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Right, so the command that's been giving is to live all of our lives doing everything without complaining and arguing. I don't even know what that I don't, I don't even know what that's like, right? Because in my mind, I may not always complain with my mouth. And forgive me, for those of you who know me, I've had my fair share of that. I have. I know I have. What are you guys laughing at? I have, okay? I have. Um, and the Christian has a difficult task ahead of him or her in terms of pursuing holiness. Uh, giving generously to those who are in need, and you know what? Even sharing the gospel with people in whom you believe, not necessarily know for sure, but people in whom you believe are going to reject you. Right? So there's always something that we're fighting against. And when you look at the church as a whole, we find ourselves sometimes in situations where it's very easy for us to grumble and argue amongst ourselves. But when the Christian begins to mature over time from the first day of his or her conversion, the scripture teaches us that it's then that we begin to shine like stars amongst those in, in whom we're around, whether it be at our schools, day-to-day um, uh, -day activities, our jobs. But when we grumble and argue, we lose something, right? There's a, there's a part of our our character that we lose, and I'll give you the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Here's what Jesus says we lose. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So if we want to shine before people, in this world, we're going to have to resist the temptation to grumble and argue with others, whether it be to other believers, again, or hanging out at our homes and schools, no matter where we are. When we're filled with a negative murmuring, I, I really believe that 
we lose that distinctive Christ-like character, whether we realize it or not. And the encouragement for us as Christians is that as we take on the challenge of shining like stars in this dark world, it is when the great hopes that we could make a difference in this corrupt world, remembering that God is work in and through us. Now, before I close out on our last verse, again, when you go to the end, we hear about Paul being proud of the church, that he didn't waste his time with anybody. And then Paul talks about, even as if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm going to be glad and rejoice with you, and I hope you're glad with me. That language Paul is using about being poured out like a drink offering was talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, where animals would be sacrificed on the altar for the pardoning or the forgiveness, the the momentary forgiveness of sins. That sacrificial system was really people just putting their sins on a credit card. They were going to have to be paid for later, and they would by Jesus. But Paul is saying, hey, if I'm going to be poured out like the sacrificial offering on this altar, please, he says, please, I'm begging you, live your life in such a way that I didn't do this in vain. That on the day of Christ, which is going to be a really, really bad day for those who have not given their faith and not submitted to Christ, that's going to be a bad day for them. It's going to be a beautiful day for us, but it's going to be a scary one as well. But he's on that day, the day of Christ, he's saying that we could stand there together and we could be proud. It's the same for us in here. On that day, Christ is coming back. That text is the same for us. Christ is coming back and on that day, we want to be able to stand together holding hands saying, man, we gave it everything we got. We did this and we're going to make mistakes. And this is why I want to close out in verse 13. Paul says, hey, listen. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love that. Those words bring such great encouragement because life is really hard. It really is. And to know that God is the one who is working inside of us, meaning that God's Holy Spirit is the one that's empowering you to shine like a light, to live for him. God is the one who has created the essence inside of you for you to not want the old lifestyle that you used to live. God's Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out. He's changing you and he's causing you to love the things that he loves, to hate the things that he hates. Because we could never do that on our own. The encouragement here is that God is promising. He's saying, I'm never going to leave you. Do you trust me to do that? I promise you. God's saying, you love my son. You honor him with your life. And I promise you, I will rock your world in such a way that only I can do and I can only, and it will be only I that can give you the hope and the peace and the encouragement inside of your mind that you will get from nothing else in this entire world if you submit to my son, if you love him. I think about that. That is a really, not the easiest thing to do. Those words great bring great encouragement. Life has such a way of bringing us down. We lose hope sometimes. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. I mean, I think about the things they could have been doing. Both of them were naked. Children inside, it's okay, I could say that. Both of them were naked. They had so many things they could have done. If I was there, I'll tell you what I think I would have done. I think I would have 
I know there was no killing or anything like that, but I think I would have chopped down a tree. I think I would have carved it out. Remember that show? I'm going to date some of us back. Remember The Love Boat? Remember that movie, that show, that weekly show, The Love Boat? I think I would have carved out a tree. Me and Renee, two naked people, we would have sailed down the Euphrates in The Love Boat. We would have enjoyed. That's not what happened. Adam and Eve were coerced into thinking that they could be just like God. God had given them everything. He said, everything is yours. Just don't go near that. And they did. And after that, all this discouragement came in. And, and that spiritual cancer has gone in through every, every one of us. And without Christ, when we stand in front of our spiritual mirrors, it's the reflection's really not pretty. But God says, I'm going to work inside of you. I'm going to make you beautiful. Not just, not just to, to shine as a star, but first to begin with, you're my son and you're my daughter. And I will give you everything that's mine. You will lack nothing. We read from the book of Ephesians that God says that I've blessed you. I've given you every spiritual blessing. It's yours. I, like, how many is that? Is it one? Is it five? Is it five million? Five trillion? Five hundred trillion? I don't even know the number. Maybe, maybe it's infinite. Probably is. I like what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, as Christians, we are to strive for long obedience in the same direction. And it's upward, by the way. We are to strive for long obedience in the same direction. I think what Peterson was trying to tell us, that there are no shortcuts in our Christian walk. Right? All, how many times you watching something on TV or YouTube, and there's always a different type of exercise, a pill, a food to take. Everything that we are, you're missing this one thing, this one ingredient, that you can be this GQ magazine type guy in 30 days. And Eugene Peter's saying, there's no such thing. You're not going to become spiritually perfect with some special recipe in 30 days. What it is, it's striving. It's striving. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And the obedience that we have, the, 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 the example that we have to follow is Christ himself. Everything that Jesus did, he was about his father. And then God the Father says, listen to my son. And then Jesus gives us the commands. If you love me, you'll obey me. And be by me in John chapter 10. Jesus says, if you're mine, you're not going to follow a stranger. You're going to stay right by me. And I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you into life, a life everlasting beauty. If you trust me. I, I picture Jesus saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Getting ready to land this plane here. Listen to what Sam Storms writes. One of my favorite authors. And he talks about fear and trembling. Because when you read that, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you can get tripped up on that. You may be thinking, well, wait a second, I gave my life. Aren't I free in Christ? I mean, I, why should I still have a fear? Right? I mean, I'm, I feel good. I'm, 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 I'm covered by the blood of Christ. I submitted to him, and rightfully so. But listen to what Sam Storms writes. I think this is extremely profound. He writes this. We are to do this with fear and trembling, means work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think by this, Paul has in view our attitude toward God. 
Perhaps we can catch a glimpse of what Paul had in mind by thinking back on what he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. If every being in the universe, whether human or angelic, will one day acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and bow in his presence, then the only reasonable response to him is humble, reverential fear, and a healthy dose of trembling. He is God, and we are accountable to him for every thought that passes through our minds and every word that falls from our lips in every action we take every moment of every day. And if that doesn't cause you to tremble, then nothing will. Perhaps there is also a measure of fear and trembling at the prospect that if we fail to work out our salvation, we will not have lived up to our privileges as God's children and will suffer the loss of rewards and perhaps the loss of experiential intimacy with God. The bottom line is that diligence in Christian living is no casual or flippant matter. It must be undertaken with urgency and seriousness. Amen? In closing as we'll take it to the table. I think what we really need to know today is that the problem in being obedient to Christ in which we reflect his beauty is not really that difficult, not really that difficult when we rely on God's power. In our own power, it's impossible. And even in God's power, we are prone to trip up. We are. The Apostle Paul wasn't asking or commanding us to reach for the highest stars, but rather he was setting before us that God's divine pattern was for us to have a submissive and loving mind toward Christ. I am so grateful that nowhere in here does Paul say, hey, here's a five-five, work out your own salvation, right? Work out your own salvation. Um, good luck. I hope, I hope it happens for you. It doesn't say work out for your salvation. It says work out your own. The Apostle Paul has made it clear there's nothing you can do to gain your salvation. That's a free gift from God a beautiful, beautiful gift of grace he has bestowed upon his beloved. So be rest assured of this. There is nothing that you can do that you can boast in, that you can say, hey, I achieved this. There's nothing you can do. It's a gift from God. But the beauty here was that God's divine pattern was for us to have this submissive mind, and it would be God's divine power to work in and through us to cause us to want that. And I'll leave you with this verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul wrote to the church, and he said thus, to be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul was saying in that text was thus, that as you are living your life in the church, as you're going on, sometimes being tripped up by the ways of the world. Yeah, it's, it's going to happen. But he's saying, but, but God is working in you. He's working in you. He's causing you to do what he wants you to do. I love Ephesians chapter 2. When you get to around verses 8 to 10 somewhere, Paul was telling the church at Ephesus that God created you 
to do good works for Jesus Christ. That's why we were created, that we would serve in honor. So God's not going to leave you alone. I hope you're encouraged by that today. I hope you're encouraged that when you do, as well as I will, somewhere this week trip up. It might not even take that long. It might even happen in 20 minutes from now, right? When we, if we want to go to the diner and we're just going, that table, they got their food before we did, and they came in after us. We are. Naturally, we're complainers. Guilty. I'm sorry. I am. I do things with grumbling. I do. Every day that goes by, I'm wondering, why isn't this better? Why is this? I told you I need it done this way. God's saying, I know that. God's saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to carry you through this time, this life. I'm going to carry you. If you, if you, trust, if you trust in my son... If, if you trust in him, the one who took on the stripes and the piercing, which, by the way, that's, that's the reason I sent him into the world, so that he would die for you. I, didn't, I just didn't send him in so that you guys would hang out and he would teach you things. The mission was to die for you, and, and, and that really wouldn't even be enough. So I, I, I had to put all my anger and all my wrath on my own son so that you can be with us here in heaven. That, that's why I did that. And I hear God ask us, don't, don't, you want, don't, don't you want that? I want you to want that. Do you, do you want that? We're hoping that you want it as much as we do. And that's what this table represents. This table's for all of us to be reminded of the spiritual nourishment that we need, that, that Christ came here, and that his body was broken, so that me and you can live in heaven. With all of our flaws and weaknesses, gives us permission to come to him. He says, I want you to trust my son. Pray with me if you would, Father in heaven, as we come to the table now. I pray that none in here take in an unworthy manner because your scripture teaches us that if we do that, then we actually bring judgment upon our, ourselves. Father, in this moment, Holy Spirit, please, if there's someone in here that just needs to bring something up to you that needs to say, hey, uh, Father, I am so sorry for what I did, me included. I, I, I am not left out of the equation as the pastor here. But if we need to bring something to your attention, I pray that we do that now so that we can partake together as, a, as brothers and sisters, that we could be encouraged and knowing that there's nothing magical in these these elements of, of a matzah and, and then some crimson red juice in place of wine, but, but rather they be set now aside for a holy purpose that we can partake together and receive the spiritual nourishment as we wait for Jesus Christ, as we wait for that day, that just the same way as Paul, that we too would, would not say on that day that we ran this race in vain. We 
gave it everything that we got. So please, Holy Spirit, please, may we be aware of your promises and may we may be completely aware that every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus, both in Old and New Testament, that you're never going to leave us. So thank you, Almighty God, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.